we find our passage in the latter part of the 15th chapter of Paul's letter to the Romans. It is a rather lengthy reading, and so I'll read it for us, but certainly you follow along in your Bible or in your bulletin insert. And this is where Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings... They ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. When Apollo 11 landed on the moon in 1969, not only did Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin become heroes overnight, but we were able to see some of the most amazing pictures, and some of those pictures that we were able to gaze upon were not really maybe what we expected. And by that, I mean we all were looking forward to seeing what the moon's surface looked like, the dirt, and was the dirt really dusty and and these kinds of issues. We wanted to see the craters. We wanted to see all of that. But what we weren't ready for was the backward glance across thousands of miles of space. 
to see that picture of earth from the moon's perspective. As one person put it, earth appeared in its entirety as astonishingly, staggeringly beautiful. In a sense, it opened our eyes to perceive our world with new insight, new respect and all. For a few brief moments, we were given the privilege of standing, as it were, in the shoes of God after the creation and of being able to echo those words of complete affirmation, when God saw and behold, it was very good. Now think about that a moment. Can that not be an image of grace? You know, the doctrine of grace is telling us what under normal circumstances and from our limited point of view we cannot see that we are in God's eyes very good. Not morally good because we're born in sin and because we're sinners and we've fallen short of God's glory. But good as His creation, good as beings made in His image, good as those whom God knew before we were formed in our very mother's wombs. That in fact from His creation and in His creation, including ourselves, we have the gift to be able to see His eternal power and deity as Paul teaches us in Romans 1. You see, when we think about grace like this, then the issue is not whether or not we have grace, because it's always present. Rather, the problem becomes actually seeing, seeing that we have it, and so entering wholeheartedly into cooperation with its transforming power. And this is the attitude we see from Paul in this passage before us this morning in Romans 15. He sees, he's able to see that he has God's grace at work in his life. That's why he writes on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. You see, Paul understands that He's been a recipient of God's grace. In fact, he talks about grace all of the time. You know, in the, in the Greek, that word is charis. We don't see charis hardly ever in the, in the Gospels. I think it's maybe four times in the Gospels that we see the word charis. But in Paul's letters, he talks about it all of the time. It's in there some 89 times, this grace that he's received. In other words, he is able to see it. And he works in cooperation with its transforming power. And this is important for those Christians in Rome to know. Because remember, Paul has never been there before. He told us back in the first chapter, I want you to know, brothers, that I've often intended to come see you, but thus far have been prevented. And that's why as he begins to bring this letter, at least the teaching portion of it, to a close that he mentions his itinerary so much because he's trying to explain to them why it has taken him so long to finally end up in the city of Rome and that he hopes to see them immediately after he takes this special offering 
to the church at Jerusalem. And as we read through this passage a few moments ago, you were probably thinking, you know, these words are so personal and, and, and so have to do with his travels and so have to do with specific things in the life of the Roman church. How's he ever going to have a sermon on that? Well, the first time I read it through, that's what I thought as well. But even though these verses speak of specific issues in the life of Paul and in the church at Rome, we see some principles here in this passage that are certainly relevant for us in the modern day church in the 21st century. And the first principle has to do with, you guessed it, grace, God's gift of grace. And that principle is that successful ministry is always God's doing. It's always His work, always His blessing. It's because of His grace. Now, as we think about Paul's work, there's no doubt that he's a hard worker. He says as much in this text. We see it there in verse 18 when he writes that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. You know, Illyricum was north and west of Macedonia, where modern-day Albania, Croatia, and Bosnia are, and one other country that I can't pronounce its name. And, and as I was looking at a map, it looks to me like by land, that's some 1,500 miles from the vicinity of Jerusalem. Just think of all the towns, all the villages, all the people all the thousands of square miles. And Paul's not saying that he's been in every town and village, but he is saying that he's established outposts of the kingdom in enough towns that all of that area can be covered by missionaries, by those going out and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. He's traveled. Paul has through many of these areas on his missionary journeys. And even though he has spent all of this time and effort, he gives all of the credit to God. It's through the grace God has given him. God chose Paul. He he prepared Paul. He called Paul and has given this ministry to him. But not only that, God also empowers his ministry. It's by the grace of God that his ministry has worked and been successful. This is what Paul wants to talk about. Not what he himself has done, but what Christ has accomplished in and through him as the power of the Holy Spirit has enabled his words, his actions, his deeds, his decisions, his travels, everything. And this is something that we always need to remember in the life of the church today. If things are going poorly in the local church, then we either need to learn something or we're being disobedient and or maybe we're being so obedient that we're under attack by Satan. But if things are going really well, as they are for us right now with lots of people joining with visitors each and every Sunday, it seems, with meaningful outreach in which we can participate in and grow in our faith, and it's because of God's grace. It's because He is blessing us generously. 
I've seen this in other churches where I've served. You know, it's, you, you know it's not anything you're doing when you go for years and don't grow and then all of a sudden you grow by leaps and bounds with the same leadership, with the same congregation when there's that sort of tremendous change that takes place Obviously, it's the grace of God at work. Obviously, it's the power of His Holy Spirit reviving and, and, and revolutionizing in some ways His people and His church. You know, Luke has it right in Acts 2 when in describing how the early church was growing by leaps and bounds, Luke says, and the Lord added to their number day by day. It wasn't the apostles. It wasn't that newly established board of deacons. It was the Lord who was adding to their number. But this gift of God's grace isn't all that Paul is talking about here. He's also talking about another gift, this special offering he's been receiving for the Jerusalem church. We see that in verse 25 when he writes, At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. And he goes on to talk about how the churches in Macedonia and Achaia have participated in that offering. Macedonian churches would have been churches like Philippi and Thessalonica. Corinth was in Achaia. And Paul says there they were pleased to do it. Indeed, they owe it to them, talking about these churches. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Now, this is a jam-packed verse, and there's a lot going on from the standpoint of the principle we want to highlight, and we'll get to that principle in a moment. But first, we can see the truth that a good thing, whatever it happens to be, a good thing can accomplish more than one goal. Jerusalem was a somewhat impoverished city at this time, and that would have especially been true for the Christian church. And while this gift would help them financially, it would also bring uh, Jewish Christians that were there in the Jerusalem church and these primarily Gentile Christians in cities like Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth, it would bring them closer together. That's what Paul is hoping to accomplish, not just the simple thing of helping the poor in Jerusalem, but helping relationships all over the church as a whole. And the basic principle we find in this verse is that spiritual blessings call for material blessings. Spiritual blessings call for material or financial blessings. In this passage, Paul is talking about how the Jews, specifically Jesus as a Jew, and God's promises to the Jews fulfilled in Jesus as Messiah, how all of that has benefited the Gentiles. And since they have benefited spiritually, they should reciprocate materially. Now this morning here at First ARP Church, we're not talking about Gentiles and Jews, are we? But those of us who belong to this church do benefit spiritually. We grow in our faith as the gospel is proclaimed and taught. Our children 
and our grandchildren grow and, and learn scriptural truths, we have the opportunity to participate in outreach ministries that help us to grow in our faith. If you don't believe that, talk to some of our young people and adults who've been on the Appalachian mission trip. Talk to some of our young people and adults who help with our Just Joy ministry. And we're going to have a new ministry this fall to reach out to international students right here at Winter where we can, we can bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to those in the world right here in our own community. This is a principle that we see over and over in Scripture. And we see it in different ways that spiritual blessings call for material blessings. For example, in 1 Corinthians 9, this is where Paul writes, if we have sown spiritual good among you, is it too much if we reap your material benefits? The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. That's why in the Associate Reformed Presbyterian denomination, I don't have a job in the city somewhere and then preach on the side. That's why a congregation like you will call a pastor like me and you'll give a written call delineating what you will pay for salary and housing and expenses and all the rest. It's from a principle like this, that spiritual blessings call for material blessings. And there's even more here in these words because we see a balance, if you will, between spontaneity on the one hand and obligation on the other, as one commentator put it. Notice how Paul says that these people were pleased to give, meaning that it was their free decision. It's like a, a spontaneous gift. But yet in the same verse, Paul can also say that the Gentiles owe it to the Jews to share with them financially. So it sounds like an obligation. Well, which is it? Is it a free gift or is it an obligation? Paul does much the same over in 2 Corinthians 9 where he's also talking about this same special offering to the Jerusalem church except he's talking to the church at Corinth about it. And he tells them that God loves a cheerful giver. You know, that's a famous verse. We all know that verse. God loves a cheerful giver. It's right there in 2 Corinthians 9. And yet, just a few verses later, he reminds them that their giving is a matter of obedience. Now, which is it? Is it free and unconstrained? Or, or is it an obligation? Paul says there in 2 Corinthians 9, you'll glorify God by your obedience in acknowledging the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your contribution for them. So we owe God for His grace at work in our lives and we owe other believers who need our help and yet our giving should be free and unconstrained. Each one must do as he's made up his mind, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9. That's what comes before the God loves a cheerful giver verse. Each one must do as he's made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Well, in trying to answer this question, which is it, uh, one commentator suggested the analogy of parenting. 
And I think that's a really good way to think about it. You know, according to Scripture, I owe it to my children to be a good father to them, to teach Scripture and biblical principles to them, not just by words, but by example and how I live, and to pray for them and and to stay invested in their lives. Yet I also delight in being a good and generous father to them. My son Jamie's birthday was a couple of weeks ago, and I just couldn't wait to see him open his present because Sarah and I took time, and he had a certain thing on his list, and I went out and spent a lot of time studying those particular items, and I chose the one I would have wanted for myself, and that's what I bought for him. I, was, I just couldn't wait for him to open up that present and see if he liked it. And at the same time, while we were celebrating his birthday, my daughter Rachel came home from Greenville, and you know, her car sits out all the time. She didn't ask me to do this, but I washed her car the next morning because it looked terrible, and, and I like a clean car. And my point is, I love to do things for my children because I love them, just like you love to do things for your children and your grandchildren because you love them. In other words, my fathering is not some terrible obligation, but a glad responsibility. And in the same way, you see, our giving to God is based upon our relationship of love with Him. When we love God, then it's not an obligation to give to the work of His kingdom. This is how cheerful givers are born. Because it all has to do with that relationship based on love. Well, there's more we could say about that, but we have to move on to mention a final principle that we see near the end of this text, which is another gift, or having to do with another gift, the gift of prayer. And Paul teaches us by his request that we are to pray for those in ministry. That's a a principle we all need to use each and every day, pray for those in ministry. We see this in verse 30 and following where Paul says, I appeal to you to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. You know, at the end of his letters, Paul typically asks the churches to whom he's writing, he asks them to pray for him, and and this is no exception with the letter to the Romans, even though he's never met them. Now, think about that a moment. This is Paul, an apostle, appointed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, an apostle who has met Jesus face to face, the same apostle who's performed signs and wonders, has seen the Holy Spirit mightily at work in his life and in the lives of others, and he, this apostle, is asking for prayer from people he doesn't even know. Surely, we should be doing the same, especially asking for prayer from one another. We're all in ministry if we're serving the Lord Jesus Christ, and we all need the power of His Spirit at work in our midst, and we all therefore need the prayers of one another. You know, we have these eight prayer teams all throughout the church, and those prayer teams meet every month practically. And and that's a wonderful time and opportunity for you to say 
to one of those prayer team leaders or to all of them. I need you to pray for me, and this is how I need you to pray. You know, take note of what we see in these brief verses at the end of this chapter. We see the importance of making others aware of our needs. How many times do we not feel the power of people's prayers in our lives and it's because we've never told them to pray for us in the first place. We must make people aware of what it is we need God to do for us. And then once we know of these needs, we have to be willing to get involved. Paul is asking them to strive together with him, to join him in praying for these same things. That's an interesting word there, strive in the Greek. It's not used anywhere else in the entire New Testament. And it's the word from which we get our word agony. But I don't want you to think the definition of our word agony because agon in the Greek was an athletic contest. That's what Paul is saying there. He's thinking of something like a wrestling match or or running a race when he says, I want you to strive together with me. He's in this contest of praying and he wants his other Christian people to pray right alongside of him. And notice how specific Paul is here when he asks for two things, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, these Jews that followed him around all over the place, always persecuting him, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. In other words, he doesn't want this special offering to be misunderstood or misinterpreted. He wants it to draw these Jewish Christians and these Gentile Christians closer together, not cause more of a rift than there already is. So we see that we are to be specific as we pray and specific as we ask others to pray. You know, don't turn to the person in the pew beside you and say, I need you to pray for me, and that's all you say. You say something like, I've got a math exam at 11 o'clock on Tuesday morning. I need you to pray for me specifically that I'll remember everything that I've studied. You get the drift of what I'm saying. Now, finally, when we've done all of this, then we rest in God's will. That's what Paul is doing as he brings the teaching portion of this letter to a close and as he looks going toward Jerusalem even though harm may come. That sounds like someone else, doesn't it? Getting ready to go to Jerusalem even though harm may come just like Jesus did. When the gospel tells us he set his face toward Jerusalem. In other words, he would not be distracted. He set his face toward Jerusalem even though he knew the cross would come. And he did so because he knew it was God's will. And he knew it would provide salvation for you and for me. Thus he could rest in that purpose for which he was sent. In fact, he prayed that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, your will be done and not my own. May that be true in our lives as we put these principles into effect for the good of the church and for our good spiritually in the days to come. Amen. Amen.